Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest Fraser of Allender Institute podcast. I'm David Iser, and today I'm joined by my colleagues, Mary Spowage and Stuart McIntyre. And we're going to focus the discussion in today's podcast on two things. The first is the uh, latest JERS statistics that were published this week. And the second is the labour market and what the latest data is showing us and what the outlook is for the labour market um, as restrictions in the economy are eased. Uh, so first of all, we'll talk about JERS and I'm going to come to uh, Mary. So, um, Mary, can you first of all give us a quick summary of what um, the JERS data showed us? Did it, did it show us what we were expecting or were there any big surprises in there? Yeah, thanks, David. They, they broadly showed us what we were expecting. So for, for, for the uninitiated, although if you're listening to our podcast, you probably know what, what the JERS statistics are. Um, these statistics show um, the amount of money that's spent on, on services for the good of people of Scotland versus the tax revenue that's raised from Scotland. Um, and what they showed us, uh, um, bearing in mind that they were for the financial year 2020-21, so April 2020 to March 2021, so over the period of the pandemic, was that the, the, the gap between those two things was around £36 billion in Scotland in the, the most recent year. And that's equivalent to 22% um, of GDP. Now, that sounds very big, um, and it is. Um, but we should remember that that's in comparison to um, the, the, the largest um, peacetime UK deficit as well, of around 14%. But you can see there's a significant gap there between the UK and Scotland, which is driven mostly by higher government spending per head in Scotland compared to the UK as a whole. But these were broadly what we were expecting. Um, the, the gap between Scotland and the UK was maybe a little bigger um, than, than I had predicted on Tuesday before the stats came out. But that's because there was also a fall in the GDP figure um, for North Sea, which meant which fell by around 40% in the, in the year. So that meant the denominator was a little bit smaller, um, which meant the, the percentage of GDP was just a little bit bigger than I had predicted. So. But yeah, broadly what we're expecting due to the unprecedented levels of spending that we've seen through the period of the pandemic. If, if we dig under the figures a little bit, um, we can see, again, the, the sorts of things we would expect. So in, on tax receipts, we see a fall off in, in VAT and fuel, fuel duties as there's less spending in the economy than would normally be the case. We see falls in business rates, given that so many businesses were given reliefs throughout the pandemic. So again, what we would be expecting. And on the spending side, we see huge increases in social protection spending, which covers all the social security payments, such as people claiming UC um, on, a, on, a, on a larger scale than before. Massively increased health spending and huge increases in, in economic um, development spending, which uh, is all of these business grants that have been paid out to businesses to support them through. So yes, so whilst the figures look eye-watering and unprecedented, they were they were pretty much what we were expecting to see. Okay, so a big increase in the in the deficit, both at the at the UK level and in the and in the notional Scottish uh, deficit. And if, as you've said, that's uh, entirely to be expected given given what had happened in uh, the 2021 financial year. In, the, in, in past years, um, 
we've seen some people sort of a, a, attack the jurors numbers themselves uh, a, a, and sort of say that you know well it, the extreme version of the argument i suppose is to say that the, the methodology is um, a bit bogus and unreliable and we just shouldn't trust the numbers themselves at all i didn't see quite so much of that sort of thing this year w were there any new um critiques or attacks of the of the methodology itself that came out this year there weren't really any any new ones. Um, there was with some of the usual criticism that um, some of the um, figures are are estimated or or apportioned using things like survey data, um, and it is true that, for example, um, the estimate of VAT um, uses um, survey data on spending to estimate the Scottish share. Um, but just because the figures are estimated doesn't mean they should be dismissed or that that means that it's the same as just making them up out of thin air. Um, these are robust estimates um, that have been, you know, um, subject to a lot of scrutiny, more scrutiny than any other statistics over the years. Um, and even if you change, you know, you know, these reasonable assumptions to um, other reasonable assumptions, it doesn't change the sort of overall picture or, or broadly what we think of in terms of the VAT, for example raised in Scotland. Some of the um, the questions that I saw around the data were, you know, um, one, why do we compare Scotland to the UK as a whole rather than to the rest of the UK? Or, you know, what might the data say for England? Um, we don't know for this latest year yet what those figures say because the ONS do produce them for um, all areas of the UK, so the, all the regions of England and for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. But they, they lag a bit more than the JERS figures. So the JERS figures are produced um, more quickly than the ONS figures. And therefore, we don't yet know what the 2021 figures will show. But what we generally see is across the UK, Scotland isn't unusual, spending more money than they raise in taxes. It's true for every area of the UK, except for London, the southeast and the east of England. Those are the only areas who raise more tax. Um, than they spend in services. So, um, you know, the north of England, Northern Ireland, Wales are all in the same situation as Scotland, as in they, they, they spend more money than they raise in taxation. One of the other um, issues I've seen um, people saying is that, you know, how can, can Scotland have a deficit as the Scottish government has to run a balanced budget? Um, and here we're that this is sort of confusing two issues about the way that money is spent on public services and the overall amount that's spent, including through the UK government. So, you know, yes, um, the Scottish government has a responsibility to spend its budget and to work within a balanced budget. But the question is, how is that budget financed? It's financed from the block grant from Westminster and in part Scottish tax revenues. And that block grant from Westminster is funded in part from borrowing. So as well as obviously all the other spending that's done by the UK government in Scotland, such as the state pension, for example. So what we're looking at in JERS through the statistics is all of the spending that's done on behalf of the people of Scotland, kind of regardless who does that spending, whether it's local government, Scottish government or UK government. So those were some of the things that, um, that I saw come up yesterday, as well as some of the kind of perennial issues that pop up. So interestingly enough, the Scottish government have changed the way they deal with um, HS2 in the figures. So before they used to take a small proportion of HS2 spending based on a report that the Department for Transport had produced showing that there would be some benefit, economic benefit to Scotland from HS2. I believe 2% of spending used to be taken as a spending item in JERS because it was seen as a benefit to Scotland. 
Um, Scottish government statisticians, due to the increasing complexities around this area, have decided just to exclude that. So there's now no spending on HS2 included in GERS. So that kind of simplifies the situation, I suppose, and, and sort of uh, puts one of the, the perennial issues that comes up to bed. Yeah, that's interesting. And I hadn't I hadn't realised actually that, that detail about the HS2. So it, there's no HS2 spending now in the in the estimates of spending on behalf of Scotland. That, that's that right. Yeah. And, and yeah, and you can see it. There's there's quite a there's a great table in Jairus in the the annex which shows um, where they've made these decisions. The Scottish government statisticians have made the decision to kind of you know, exclude these spending items. And there's some on the London Olympics, which is another one that comes up quite often and, and on HS2 as well. And so is it still the case then that the, the, the kind of key thing that drives the difference in, in Scotland's notional deficit relative to the UK's deficit is the higher per capita spending on devolved services that's funded through the Barnet formula is that really what's what's driving this rather than differences in um, big differences in tax revenues or in welfare spending? Yeah, I mean, there are some differences in tax revenues and welfare spending. So, um, you know, whilst the difference isn't isn't huge, we do raise a little bit less in tax revenue per head um, compared to the UK average in Scotland, um, around £300 per, per person. Um, and we do spend a little bit more on on social security for various reasons, <clears throat> including you know our, our the, the characteristics of our labour market and activity levels and, and various other things. Um, but yes, the biggest difference is in is in spending in, in these default areas, as you say. And overall, we are spending around eighteen hundred pounds per head more than the UK average in Scotland on on these services. Right, so that's the actual the detail of the numbers th themselves and how they're generated. Then there's the question about how these uh, numbers are interpreted and what they what they can tell us about um, the constitutional debate. Um, I, I guess in in previous years we've kind of the last the most recent years we've sort of typically seen a UK deficit of around two or three percent and a notional Scottish deficit of maybe somewhere around eight percent um, and that difference I think is sort of quite often seemed quite salient to people because there's a perception that a deficit of two to three percent is inherently sort of fairly sustainable whereas one of eight percent is is inherently fairly uh, unsustainable. Now we've got these sort of unprecedented figures for 2020-21 uh, of 14% sort of deficit for the UK and 22% for Scotland. Do we learn anything more, anything new from um, the latest figures around what all this means for the constitutional debate um, or not? It's a really good question. I mean, they are totally, totally unprecedented, much higher even than at the height of the financial crisis. Um, and obviously, even if we look at the plans that the government has, um, the UK government that is, you know, there's there's obviously um, going to be a spending review soon, um, which will set out spending plans for the next few years. Um, you know, we're not going to get back to that level of sort of two two percent um, deficit at the UK level for a number of years. Um, you know, uh, based on on current projections and plans, so um, I think what it 
So, so this is an unprecedented time, um, and there's likely to be, you know, continued spending that's required, um, increasing um, pressures on the health service, um, whole question over what we spend on social care. You know, there are lots of these uh, medium to long term pressures that are coming on spending, public spending in the UK. And, you know, it, it is both a, a question for the UK and Scottish governments to think through um, how to get back to a more of a fiscally sustainable um, position. Um, but for Scotland and for, you know, the constitutional debate, I guess it, it does further crystallise that structural um, gap between um, the, the, the Scottish level of spending and, and that at the UK level. Um, and whilst it is under the current constitutional arrangements, um, the Scottish Parliament only has limited powers over taxation um, and may make, if, if, if Scotland was independent, there may be different choices made about how to grow the economy, what sort of tax base to look at, what sort of taxes to implement in order to fund public services. Public services may be chosen to be delivered in a different way, for example. And so if the purpose of independence is to take those different choices, obviously these accounts, um, which are uh, of Scotland as part of the UK, don't tell us anything about what that might look like really. But what they do, do tell us is where we are now and therefore that structural gap there is between Scotland and the rest of the UK, even if you set aside the unprecedented time that we're in. Um, and so these are the sorts of challenges and choices that will need to be discussed um, in any new kind of economic case for independence. Sort of where do we get from where we are now to, to where those who are advocating for change would wish us to be? Okay, and, and final question, um, just interested in your thoughts on one of the arguments that um, is sometimes put forward in response to these JERS numbers is, um, is effectively an argument that says, well, th th this difference in deficit in Scotland and other um, parts of the UK outside of London and the Southeast actually um, uh, demonstrates a sort of failing of how the UK as a whole works and a sort of failure to um, sort of break that gravitational economic pull that London has and spread um, wealth and prosperity around the country more equally. And perhaps constitutional change is therefore um, uh, a, a sort of way to address some of those uh, issues of, of structural uh, fiscal deficits in, in Scotland um, and perhaps other parts of the UK. What's your, what's your take on that argument? Yeah, well, that's a, that's, a, that's a big question. I suppose if you're looking at um, the, the levels of taxation, spending, economic activity, um, wages, you know, lots of indicators you can look at for the performance of different parts of the UK. If we focus on Scotland, in general, Scotland does very well on lots of these measures um, and, you know, performs pretty well in terms of, you know, any league tables we see of the UK in terms of economic activity. Um, it tends to be areas, um, other areas of the country that will do less well. Um, and if you look at the level of public spending in the north of England, for example, um, you know, I might be pretty cross if I lived in the north of England and you look at the relative levels of spending, there compared to, to some other parts of the country, including London, which does get a lot of capital infrastructure spending because obviously it is the capital and it's seen as the kind of engine of growth for the UK. So there definitely is a, um, a good question to be asked about how we prioritize 
um, capital investment and other forms of spending to generate economic activity so that it doesn't gravitate towards um, you know, these big population or economic centres where it's seen that it will generate more economic activity and more multiplier effects. And there is a case maybe for looking at things differently in terms of how we prioritise government spending. But that's as true in Scotland as it is across the UK. Um, and, you know, you know, the outlook for things like population or the last few years of economic performance would suggest that, you know, there is quite a centering on Edinburgh and its surrounds. And that does have implications for economic growth and the outlook for population in, in rural parts of Scotland, for example. So I think it has to be borne in mind by all layers of government that we maybe need to look to or think a bit differently about where to invest money to ensure that economic growth and prosperity spread more evenly. Okay, yes, so there's there's something in the argument, um, but the onus is still very much on, on those who favour constitutional change to set out how constitutional change would uh, influence that, that, that structural deficit in the future. Great, okay, thanks for that. Um, uh, we'll now talk uh, about the labour market um, with Stuart, Stuart McIntyre. So, um, we'll come to talk about the future outlook in a bit, Stuart, but can you give us, first of all, a, a summary of what the latest um, data is telling us now? I remember at sort of the end of last year and even beginning of this year, um, forecasters were sort of typically telling us that we, we, we might well be looking at unemployment of around uh, 8% by this point in the year. Um, it seems like things have improved substantially since when those uh, forecasts have been made. Is, th is that right? And can you can you tell us a bit about uh, why that might be? Thanks, David. I think the first thing to say is the latest data this week only takes up to the end of June. And if we think about the way in which we've seen economic activity track quite closely with public health restrictions, that point in June was really where we're starting to unwind. And so what the latest data are really showing us is that as that unwinding started to take hold, labour market indicators in terms of employment rate, unemployment rate are heading in the right direction, but there's still quite a lot ahead. So if you think back to the data we've seen over the last 18 months and more, a big reason we've not seen more movement in the employment rate and the unemployment rate so far has been the presence of the furlough support scheme, supporting millions of jobs across the UK um, and hundreds of thousands um, in Scotland. And despite the fact that we've seen huge easing of public health restrictions, on the latest data, we've still got over 140,000 jobs in Scotland furloughed. So that, that's a lot of jobs. We've also still got over 60,000 more people claiming unemployment-related benefits than was the case in, in March 2020. So there's still quite a lot of the labour market that's paused or um, has the potential to manifest itself in quite significant spikes in unemployment and drops in employment. Because... All, all of these people who are on furlough are classed as being in employment, but temporarily away from work. So if with the ending of the furlough support scheme at the end of September, those people who are still furloughed don't go back to their employer, 
there ceased to be employed and we might see quite a drop in the employment rate. We may even see a bit of a drop in the employment rate before then because from July, employers have to pay an increasing share of furlough costs. So it's possible in the next set of furlough data, we'll see um, a, a, a further decline, a further significant decline in the number of people furloughed. And that might be a bit of an indication about the direction of travel. So the headline indicators are broadly heading in the right direction as public health measures eased. However, we do still have big increase of over 60,000 of, of people claiming unemployment related benefits and also 140,000 jobs still furloughed. So there's a potential for these headline indicators to change quite rapidly um, over the next couple of months. That's, that's really interesting uh, on some of the downside risks. We're also hearing some reports of, um, I guess, labour shortages and wage pressures in particular sectors. Um, I actually heard an interview uh, with a, a former member of the uh, Monetary Policy Committee, although I can't remember which one, who was basically painting an incredibly upbeat picture of the labour market and saying that um, uh, none of these people who are on furlough uh, are going to have a difficulty in uh, finding a job. Things were actually running a bit too hot and we should be worrying about that side of things. What's your take on on the balance there? And is it is it? I guess it might not necessarily be incompatible. The idea that we've got some sectors running a bit hot, where there are shortages and wage pressures, but that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it will be uh, straightforward for the people currently on furlough or inactive to uh, to find work, depending on on how some of these structural changes play out as the economy reopens what, what's your what's your kind of take on that i think in a number of ways this parallels if you remember back earlier in the summer as restrictions started to ease there was there were a number of people who were really focused then on and concerned about what's happened with inflation because we started to see inflation um tick up and some people were saying well Inflation is starting to tick up. We need to be really careful that the economy is not uh, doesn't begin to overheat. Advocating for policy measures to counter that, and actually, we we've started to see inflation tick back down again. What we were seeing with inflation picking up was really the economy readjusting as more of the economy reopened, as supply chains had to um, become sort of. Um, ungummed, if that's um, the, the right phrase. Um, and as we've started to see more and more economic activity pick up, supply chains get back in place, we've seen this week inflation um, starting to, to, to drop back a bit. And in much the same way, we are seeing in some of the data this week, quite substantial average growth in average weekly wages in the UK as a whole. So real terms increases that are the highest recorded in the survey data that goes back to, to the year 2000. Now, is that a sign that everything's going really well in the labour market and we've got a huge excess demand for, um, for workers? Well, not really, because if 
people were working for firms and firms were struggling for workers and they've got them in furlough, they bring them back from furlough. We've still got a lot of people on furlough. Um, but also those numbers are driven by, by two things. One is we're comparing now to a year ago, which was a very low earnings period because it was the, the sort of lowest earnings period after the pandemic hit. So we've got a sort of what's known as a base effect. Um, but secondly, what we're looking at here is, or, or what that measure is, is the change in average earnings. Now, there's been a change in the people working in the labour force. And one effect of that is we've seen what we call a compositional change of we've lost a number of lower paying jobs, while those people who are continuing to work from home um, and in higher paid jobs have had more job security. And the effect of this is that average wages are increasing quite rapidly, but it's not because the labour market is hugely um, you know, vibrant and there are lots of, of job opportunities. We are seeing vacancies increase, but we've still got a lot of people on furlough representing the fact that their businesses aren't taking them back, which says something about demand in the economy. Now, of course, there's going to be a bit of so reallocation issues here. So if you look at the payroll data, for example, payroll data in, in London is significantly below every other part of the country. So we may see labour shortages in London, but in some ways that's partly driven by these sort of reallocation effects. So we've got in major cities, we don't have the international students that would otherwise be working there because they're learning remotely. So we don't have that same labor supply as we might have had before um, in places where um, demand is starting to come back on. So these sorts of effects, I think, are all playing into this. So I guess the short answer to that question is, do I think the labor market is overheating? So no, um, I think that there's quite a way to go before we get there. Some of the indicators looked at on their own, you might take to be a sign that things are um, you know, things are really picking up again um, and that policymakers need to be really worried about the impact of this in terms of an, an overheating labour market feeding into inflationary worries and everything else. I just don't see it at the moment. And I think the next couple of months of data with the unwinding of the furlough scheme will really bring that into stark contrast. Okay, so that's that's the sort of uh, immediate outlook. Are there are there any other important issues that you think will influence the outlook in a sort of slightly longer term over the next uh, eight months, a year or so? Where, where where do you think we might be in a year's time? That's probably an impossible question to ask, but what at least will be the sort of factors that might influence that? I think the immediate focus, as I was talking about, is of course the end of the furlough scheme. But one of the things that as economists, we are acutely aware of is that for a number of people, the pandemic period has been one of quite a challenging labour market. We've seen people who have been furloughed since March 2020. We've seen um, new people emerge into the labour market, leaving school, university, college, emerging into the labour market. People who, um, particularly younger workers who predominantly work in sectors like accommodation and food, retail, other services, those were the sectors most affected by public health restrictions. And so opportunities were fused in, in those sectors where young people tend to work. So as economists, we are 
always very aware of the extent to which these sorts of labor market experiences can have longer term effects. So we call this kind of scarring effects. But essentially, um, our understanding of how even relatively short-lived periods or peers out of work or you know, not engaged in education training can have quite persistent impacts. So where people have had that difficult labor market experience through the pandemic, one thing worried about is the extent to which these impacts persist and continue to mark people's um, labor market experience going forward. More generally, concerns about things like long, long COVID and the extent to which we will have enduring impacts on people's ability to participate in the labor market as a result of the experience they've had with the, um, the coronavirus. More generally, there are potential big structural changes that could take place that could really reshape the labor market. One of which is the extent to which the sort of flexible, agile, working from home, flexible working that we've experienced since March 2020, or a lot of people have experienced through March 2020, from March 2020, persists. So is it the case that we are going to see huge changes in the nature of how we engage with the labour market as, as workers? Are we going to find ourselves working from home a lot more? Are we going to find ourselves um, you know, working much more flexibly? How's that all going to work? And we're already starting to see some employers saying, actually, this is working for us and we're going to keep doing this. We've also seen more recently a bit of a push to get people back into the office at least part of the time. So the extent to which that sticks is going to be quite important and not just in terms of the labour market experience of, of workers, but also in terms of where those workers are will drive their consumption patterns. So are we going to see our city centres having to be a bit reimagined because they're no longer able to rely upon a vibrant office worker trade that they had pre-pandemic. So how are we going to reimagine our cities? Big challenges more generally for society. Um, I, I think as the, um, as the economy reopens as well, obvious challenges around migration and what the future of UK migration is, not just in terms of skill gaps in certain parts of the country, um, but also the extent to which um, we see potentially that the attractiveness of the UK as a destination for migrants post-Brexit might be quite different. So we've got not only the impacts of the pandemic and the UK's new immigration scheme, but also um, the, the, the post-Brexit um, post um, changes coming in. Well, you, you predicted my final sort of brief question there, which was that, um, you know, earlier in January, the um, we had this triggering of a Scotland-specific economic shock, which really um, came about because of a sort of fluke in the, the technicalities of the forecasts that the Fiscal Commission had made at that time. But nonetheless, we have we're, we're in this we're in these this condition of a of a Scotland-specific economic shock. Is there anything in the existing labour market data that? that you've seen that points to any difference in the speed of recovery so far this year, uh, labour market recovery between Scotland and the rest of the UK? Not really at this point. If you look at the headline data, if you look at the 
path of the, the, the reduction number of people by number of jobs furloughed, you're not really seeing big differences. There are differences in the point estimates, but really it's going to be as we see the end of the furlough scheme, this is in, in a lot of ways the point at which we'll start to get a sense of whether or not there's bigger structural change here. And that's really what you're going to need for these sorts of really big differences to start to emerge. Of course, we've seen over the last um, several years, Scottish government has grown in aggregate more slowly than the UK as a whole going into the pandemic. So th there's these longer term worries driven by some of the, the longer term challenges that Mary talked about earlier. And those haven't gone away. And I think that's one of the things when we think about divergent performance between Scotland and the rest of the UK, the pandemic was a common shock. But leading into the pandemic, it was clear that the Scottish economy was growing more slowly than the rest of the UK and had been for some time. And that these big long-term structural challenges still existed, had persisted for some time and will exist once we emerge from this. So I don't expect to see huge divergences, but we'll probably return to a situation where it continues to lag a bit, but not massively diverge unless we see big structural change with the ending of the furlough scheme um, or the winding down of it through the next few months and the ending of it in, in, at the end of September. So it's a bit early to, to see if we're going to see big structural change. But um, again, I, my, my sense is that we're we're more likely to go back to where we were before, which was um, years of, of the Scottish economy underperforming the rest of the UK, um, but you know not by huge amounts um, and 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 not sort of widening over time. Right. Okay. So so no no obvious evidence of of difference in in pace of recovery so far this year, but the next couple of months will be. Uh, interesting and important to to keep an eye on so for a wrap-up coming back to you uh mary um feels like very much the end of summer and uh back to the normal way of things um what's coming up uh, over the next couple of weeks in terms of key bits of of economic data and uh, analysis yeah so um so next week we should get the, the latest gdp data for scotland um, so, so this will take us up to the the end of uh, June. So that will give us the, the monthly data and, and complete that that second quarter for Scotland. So, um, so it'll be interesting to see if, like, has been the case so far. And it kind of chimes with what Stuart said that there's not much evidence that there's hugely different um, overall economic performance varies a little bit, but overall. Um, the recovery seems to be tracking similar, very similarly to the UK as a whole. I guess I would caution a little bit, though, that we should remember that these statistics are kind of being produced in the sort of early stages of um, the time periods with, with which they refer to. So I think we can um, expect in, in the months and years to come that our understanding of um, both how the economy um, contracted in the, the depth of the restrictions and also how it's recovering will probably evolve as, as we move through and we get more data about what happened to businesses and individuals through, throughout the pandemic. So at the moment, in terms of the best data we have, it looks like broadly Scotland's tracking the rest of the UK or the UK as a whole. But um, it will be interesting to see how these these figures sort of evolve. But I would just underline what Stuart said about the the challenges that existed before for Scotland. 
the outlook for things like population um, and and um, and that sort of thing where we're much poorer than for the UK as a whole, which is some of the reasons why you might be cautious about the outlook for Scotland, not just in terms of what's happened over the last year or so. The other thing that we're, we're going to see um, next week is, is new forecasts from the Scottish Fiscal Commission for the Scottish economy. So they last produced their forecasts alongside the budget at the start of the year. Um, and it's fair to say they were pretty downbeat forecasts, uh, even at that time compared to other forecasters. So it'll be interesting to see how um, their view of what's going to happen over the next five years has evolved since the start of the year. Okay, great. That sounds exciting then for people like us. We've got GDP statistics and new forecasts to look forward to next week. Great. Okay, well, um, thanks very much, everybody, for listening. And thanks to my colleagues, Mally Spowage and Stuart McIntyre. Um, and we will uh, be back with you with another podcast soon. <laughs>